What's up, y'all? Thank you for that rousing applause. Not that I deserve it by any stretch. Man, are you guys worn out? All right, I love it, man. I feel like freight trains are coming after me tonight, those lights up there. But uh, man, I know you've had a busy, busy day, especially those of you that have had a part in transporting all of this. Uh, This is a good time for you to have a little nap. Um, But... But uh, we do appreciate all the effort that has gone into everything uh, that's going to be happening in the next several days. Uh, some of you that, uh, that I'm Facebook friends with know that I uh, just got back from uh, Malawi, Africa on Sunday and uh, doing the big turnaround here. So if I fall asleep while I'm preaching, uh, somebody just shake me, Okay. But man, uh, we had eight living faith pastors on this this trip, and five of them are here at this camp. Isn't that awesome? And uh, for those of you fellas that did go, man, thank you uh, for all that you did. The the Malawi folks and the Malawi pastors just absolutely loved y'all to death, and I appreciate you taking the time. To, uh, to come and minister there. But we, uh, we have set this time aside for the Lord to do something significant in our life. Is that why you came? Man, I, I know that it's a lot of fun to hang out with friends and family and all of that kind of stuff. But man, we, we get to do that all the time. This is a time for us to come aside and just ask the Lord to do something powerful in our lives. Uh, I remember the first time that uh, I got saved when I was about 16. Uh, You know, about that next year, you know, the kids were gonna go to camp and I'm like, I don't even know what that is. And uh, so I I had no idea what to expect. But I will tell you that it was at that camp. I, I, I had been saved a year previous to that. But it was at that camp where God just absolutely rocked my world, changed my life, never looked back since then. And man, I'm, I'm just hoping that it'll be that kind of night, it'll be that kind of weekend for, for all of us. So if you would, take your Bible and let's turn together to the book of 1 Kings tonight. 1 Kings chapter 18. Now, as you're turning, please be listening as we kind of set the context of what's actually happening in 1 Kings chapter 18. But the significant thing that you need to understand is that by the word of the Lord, the prophet Elijah has prophesied the fact that there would be neither dew nor rain for a period of three and a half years. Now, I I know that it's hard to get our minds wrapped around that, but can you imagine in the, the states of Missouri, the states of Kansas, 
that for a period of 1,260 days, there is not a drop of dew or a drop of moisture anywhere in those states. It was a devastating thing that has happened. That's where we are when we come into 1 Kings chapter 18. The, the king has sent out search parties trying to find water so that the people will not die. And so as we're getting our, our, our context here, I want you to understand that at this time in Israel's history, they were facing five basic crises. Number one, there was a physical crisis. And this is what we were just talking about, this incredible drought that had come upon the land. And of course, because of the drought, there of course was famine. There was not only a physical crisis, but there was an economic crisis. And again, this was the, the, the domino effect of this famine and this drought. There was a political crisis now, for those of you that have opened your Bible, if you're in 1 Kings 18, if you'll just hang a left real quick and go to 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 33, it says something very significant about the king at that time, King Ahab. It says, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Now, I don't know what you know about the kings of Israel that were before him, but they were all a piece of work. They were jacked completely up. And so when God is saying here that this dude provoked him more than all of the other kings before him, that was, that was a mouthful. And that's not the bad part. The bad part was his, was his precious little wife. Anybody know her name? Man, y'all don't need me. Her name was Jezebel, and whoo, that babe was something, okay? And then number four, there was a moral crisis. The, the scripture literally records that the nation of Israel and forsaking God and following the God of Baal catch this, who was the sun god, who was the god of fire. Judges chapter 8 and verse 33 says, the children of Israel, listen to this now, went a whoring after Baal. And part of this Baal worship was the orgiistic debauchery that they exercised in worship of this God, and so of course, number five, there was, there was a spiritual crisis in Israel. They had forsaken God, they had forgotten his commandments, and when you look at this nation at this time, it sounds a whole lot like ours. <laughs> And that's what's going on. And because of the spiritual climate that was going on in the nation of Israel, God had brought judgment upon them. And that's this drought that we were talking about earlier. 
If you look in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 17, it says, And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? You know, it's interesting to me, y'all, that it's always the people who are backslidden and carnal and disobedient who are usually the loudest in complaining and pointing the finger and judging and criticizing others, and that's exactly what Ahab is doing. Here is the most wicked king in Israel's history pointing the finger at God's man and saying, well, if it isn't the troublemaker in Israel. And Elijah looked at him and said, I was thinking the same thing when I looked at you. (laughs) And I do want you to understand that Elijah wasn't your typical 21st century preacher who is worried about offending folk. His strings weren't pulled by some denominational headquarters or convention somewhere. He wasn't concerned about losing his retirement program. He wasn't politicking for some position. Elijah, y'all, was God's man. And he had been locked in a cave with God alone. And the power of God was on his life. And he didn't give a Jimmy Hoot what the king thought. And he didn't care. For those of you that don't don't know what a Jimmy Hoot is, he didn't care about what the people thought. He knew that he answered to Jehovah God alone and knowing he could lose his own head In verse 18, he gets in the face of the king and he says, hey, pal, let me just tell you something. It ain't me that's the troublemaker in Israel. It's the dude that you look at every morning when you shave. That's the problem in Israel. Verse 18 says, and he answered, this is Elijah. I have not troubled Israel, but thou... And thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. And he just gets all up in this king's stuff, and he identified the real root of the problem. Verse 19, now therefore send and gather to me all Israel into Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal, 450 And the prophets of the groves, 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. In other words, uh, those that were being supported by Jezebel. Verse 20, so Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel, gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. So those of you that have gone on the uh, uh, LFBI, uh, the trip to Israel, we, we've been to this location, and it's, it's kind of a, almost a natural amphitheater. It kind of has the feel of, of where we are right now. And the odds are stacked against Elijah. 850 to 1. 
Have you ever noticed how it is that sometimes God often stacks the odds against us? And you see, the reason that he does that is if it's, you know, if it's us against one or us against a few and we get the victory, then everybody's going to pat us on the back and it's going to look like, oh, hey, great job, you did awesome. But listen, when it's 850 to one and the victory is there, everybody knows the only person that can get the glory is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you just got to love my boy, Elijah. <laughs> he didn't care what the odds were. He just walks up onto the platform and he grabs the mic and he starts preaching. And Elijah, it says in verse 21, came unto all the people and said, imagine this now. <laughs> 850 of the prophets of Baal and all of the people of Israel are all around. And he looks at them and he says, how long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. Amen. Amen. But if Baal, then follow him. Amen. And that's what he's saying. Hey, choose your God, man. Go one way or the other. But this half in, half out, half up, half down, half hot, half cold, half God, half Baal. <laughs> he says, it's got to stop. How long, he says, are we going to do this? Figure out. Who you're going to serve, man, and go all in. Go for it. Go all the way. Go hard. And you know what the response of the people was? The end of verse 21 says, and the people answered him not a word. I don't think they liked it. <laughs> and, and so what he does most of you are familiar with the story. I'm sure not all of us. But what he does is he designs a showdown. And he says, okay, here, here's what we're going to do. Let's build two altars. One over here and one over here. Let's get two bullocks and let's cut them upon the wood of the altar. And, and you, you do your deal over here and you get your sacrifice ready. And the end of verse 23 says, and I will dress the other bullock and lay it on the wood. But what he says is put no fire under it. A little further in verse 23. He says, put no fire under it. Verse 24, and call ye on the name of your gods. And I'll call on the name of the Lord. I'll call on Jehovah God. And the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. Let's settle this once and for all. Baal is the God of fire. Okay, let's see who really is God. Let's see the one that answers with fire. And I got to tell you, man, 
Elijah has a lot of nerve coming against this demonic force of this Baal, the God of fire, God. But before we go any further, let, let me just let me just kind of pause a little bit and let me just ask a few questions that I, I think are pretty key. I, in your notes, the three key questions. Number one, where is the fire of God today? Where is the fire of God today? And you know what I wish, y'all? I, I wish that as we were working our way through this passage tonight, what I wish is that every single one of us would so, including the guy running his mouth, I wish that every single one of us would so personalize this passage that we would genuinely be asking ourselves, where is the fire of God in my life? Do I have it? And in challenging you to ask yourself that question along with me, listen, I'm for real, I'm not at all presuming that the fire of God isn't on your life. I'm not saying that. I'm just asking, where is it? And it just seems like the most obvious place to start with each of us is for us to individually and personally ask ourselves, is the fire of God manifest on my life? And maybe the follow-up question to that is, where is the fire of God in my home? Is it there? And again, by challenging you to ask that question, I'm not saying that it's not there. I just think it's important that we know where we need to be looking for the fire of God to be manifest. Could I ask those of you that are married, would... Would your spouse say that the fire of God is on your life and in your home? Would your kids say that the fire of God is on your life and in your home? And, and what seems like it should just be the next question to ask in a setting such as this is, where is the fire of God in my church? And again, by asking, we're not presuming that it doesn't exist. I'm just asking, where is it? And maybe to answer this first question correctly, maybe we need to talk for a second about the second key question, and that is, what is the fire of God? What is the fire of God? And biblically, it's at least two things. First of all, it's representative of God's presence. It's representative of God's presence. You'll remember that when God showed up in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 2 to talk to Moses, it says that he appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. 
God was there. His presence was there, and it was manifest in a flame of fire. In Exodus chapter 13 and verse 21, when God's presence was, was leading Israel in the Exodus, you remember that the Lord was in the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. But not only is the fire of God representative of God's presence, but secondly, it's representative of God's power. Again, you'll remember that Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, and God wanted all of the people of Israel to understand his awesome power, and so he told Moses to get them to come up to the base of that mountain. And in Exodus chapter 19, verses 17 and 18, it says, And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether, or the lowest part of the mount, and Mount Sinai was all together on a smoke. <laughs> Some of y'all have been on a smoke in your old days. And Mount Sinai was all together on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it how? In fire. And the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace. It's just billowing out. And the whole mount quaked greatly. And again, what God is doing is he's manifesting in the fire. He's manifesting his power. In the New Testament, the, the people were giving John the Baptist way too many props, even thinking that, you know, maybe he's the Christ. And he says in Luke chapter 3 and verse 16, I indeed baptize you with water. Mm -mm. But one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. In other words, John the Baptist says, man, I, I ain't Jack. But listen, just wait. When Jesus comes and he does his thing, you're going to see somebody that works with incredible power on his life. You remember in Acts chapter 2 when they were baptized with the Holy Ghost, the fire of God literally came upon them. And here is this ragtag, no-name band of men. And from that day forward, man, the power of God came on their life and they manifested incredible boldness, unashamedness, all but one of them died a martyr's death, and that little band of men that wasn't nobody turned the world upside down because they had the presence and power of God upon their lives. Listen, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the fire of God. It is the presence of God just being fully manifest in our life. And it is the incredible, supernatural, 
unexplainable power of God on a person's life. It's God's presence with us and it's God's power on us. And again, if that's what the fire of God is, then I think it's a very legitimate question for us to ask ourselves tonight. Where is it? You, you guys, I, I, I hope you know that I, I, I love you. Okay, I'm not trying to you know, be some hardcore nut. But I think these are questions that deserve to be asked. Especially in a 21st century world, man. I, I, I get it. You, you got a good job. You, 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 many of you got a good spouse. You, you've got a decent car. You have a nice house. You have a pretty nice life, man. And, you know, it's what we all dreamed about when we were kids. But could I just ask you tonight, in the midst of all of that, is the fire of God there? Is, is the fire of God really on your life? Is the fire of God really in your home? And, and again, how about when it comes to our, to our churches, man, we've got, we've got great facilities. We've got great discipleship material. We've got disciplers. We've got Sunday school. We've got kids programs. We've got sermons. We've got men's ministry. We've got women's ministry. But the question we're asking tonight isn't, where are the classes or where is the material? We're not even asking ourselves, where is the truth? <laughs> We're asking ourselves, where is the fire? On whose life? On what discipler? On what deacon? On what pastor? On what leader? of what Sunday school teacher, of what small group leader. And I would suggest to you tonight that more than we need money in our churches and more than we need organization in our churches and more than we need leadership principles and more than we need anything else, we need the fire of God. We need God's presence. We need God's power to be fully manifest in all of our lives. And that leads to the third key question, and that is, how do we get it? And I want you to notice in this, this passage, in verse 30, Elijah calls the people to come to him. Okay, and, and then notice in verse 38, it says, Then the fire of the Lord fell. Okay, and in between those verses, in between verse 30 and verse 38, 
I believe God shows us what it's going to take for us to live with the fire of God on our lives and in our churches. And he shows us three things. Three things that it's going to take before the fire of God will fall. I believe he's given us here biblical steps for living in spiritual victory. We could say it a different way. Biblical steps for living with the fire of God on our lives. But before we even get into those three things, let me just show you a principle in verse 30. And I think this is, I think this is majorly significant, y'all. Verse 30 says, And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And how many of them came, y'all? And all the people came near unto him. Also notice in verse 39, and when all the people saw it. Have you ever noticed, y'all, in, in the book of Acts, how that in the early church, that when, when God actually broke out and he did the supernatural and he, he did the extraordinary, have you ever noticed that they were all a part of it? It's an easy thing to, to, to miss, and I, I'm not going to take you to all of them, but I do want you to get the flavor of this. Acts chapter 1 and verse 14 says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Acts chapter 2 and verse 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Acts chapter 2 and verse 44, and all that believed were together. Acts chapter 4 and verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all, every last one of them, filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God, all of them, with boldness. Acts chapter 5 and verse 12. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And the lesson that I think we learned from 1 Kings chapter 18 and from the early church in the book of Acts is is that if we're going to see the fire of God on our life, it won't be apart from our connection to the body. It's not going to be apart from all the rest of us. And, and if all of the rest of the people in your local body will see the fire of God on your church, it won't be apart from you. you. You're a vital part in this whole thing of the fire of God being on your church. 
And, and could we just, could, could you just stop for just a, a minute and think with me of what it could be, y'all? I know I, I, this sounds like a pipe dream, but what could it be if we all, if we all really came to a place of resolve where we genuinely said, Lord, more than anything in the world, I want to go home on Saturday afternoon with the fire of God on my life. God, I want to leave this place different than I came. I want to leave this place with the presence and the power of God fully manifest on my life. Can you imagine if every person in this room came to that kind of place of resolve? All of us. How many of you could say tonight, that, man, I, I want to go home like that. Would you raise your hand? Hallelujah to you. <laughs> Amen, y'all. Man, that's what it's going to take. But, but again, how, how do we get there? And I think that's what this passage reveals to us. As I said, I think there's three steps here. The good news is we're not going to do all three tonight, Okay. We are going to do the first one, okay? And it's this, step number one. And oh man, I hope you'll open your heart. We must repair the altar that is broken down. We must repair the altar that is broken down. Now, as we've already talked about, by the time this passage is over, the fire of God comes down. But listen, the first thing that happened before it did was Elijah repaired the altar that had been broken down. Would you look with me at verse 30? And Elijah said unto all the people, come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. Watch it now. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob unto uh, whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain Two measures of seed. Okay, now when we talk about repairing the altar that is broken down, understand this, that in, in the picture book of the Old Testament, the altar was obviously the place where the sacrifices were offered, right? Hello? <laughs> okay, but, but understand this. All, all of those things that we read about in the Old Testament, all of those sacrifices were actually fulfilled in Christ. Okay, he talks about that in Matthew 5, 17. Okay, and, and all of those sacrifices actually picture for us various aspects of our relationship with God and our walk 
with God. And let, let me show you what I mean. First of all, this is letter A in your notes. The altar is the place where daily contrition is manifest. It's the place where daily contrition is manifest. And as you're writing that in your notes, I want to just beg you not to pass over that in your mind. Contrition. Would you listen to Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17? We got to be careful as we come into these verses because they're very familiar verses. And, you know, what I found with familiar verses is, you know, you look up at the screen, oh, yeah, I know that one. And sometimes it's what we think we know that keeps us from learning. And so let's just come at this fresh, all right? David, of course, has sinned with Bathsheba. This is part of this confession. And he says to the Lord, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. If there was a sacrifice that I could offer for adultery and murder, I'd do it. But do you understand there weren't any sacrifices for that? But if there were, I would do it. But listen to what he says. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, thou wilt not despise. Do you hear that, y'all? Our God doesn't despise that. Listen, that's what he's looking for from me. That's what he's looking for from you. What he despises, what he can't stomach, is the pride and the haughtiness and the arrogance of thinking, yeah, God, I got this. Do you remember what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3, verses 16 and 17? He says, because thou sayest I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. He says, you make me want to hurl. Galatians chapter 6, verse 3, for if a man thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, and that's all of us. He deceiveth himself. Now, I, I, I get it. I, don't, I, I doubt that there's few people in the room that are, yeah, God, I, I got this Christian life thing. But I, I wonder, though, if that isn't the, the spirit and the heart that we're communicating to him when we can go days without expressing our total dependence upon him. And as some of us know, sometimes those days can turn into weeks, man. And my dear brothers and sisters, if we're going to leave this place 
in a few days with the fire of God on our lives. Some of us are going to have to repair the altar of contrition that is broken down. We, we've got to get back to the contrition that causes us to come before God on a daily basis and says, oh God, I got nothing. Without you, I am nothing. Without you, I can do nothing. I cannot live this life that you've called me to live. And I recognize it's not even my life to live. I've been bought with a prize. And so, Lord, I need you. Oh, God, I'm desperate for you. I ask you, my brothers and sisters, where are the people in the 21st century who express genuine contrition and a broken spirit before God and a spirit of humility before God on a daily basis? I, I know the whole Jewish context of this. The first sermon that Jesus ever preached in Matthew chapter 5, can I give you the first 48 words of the sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. I know the Jewish context, but where are the people in the church that fit the description of poor in spirit? So much so that we mourn, we groan, awaiting the redemption of this body. We're meek. We're hungering and thirsting for the word of God and hungering and thirsting for a righteousness that is outside of us. Where are the people that fit that description in the church of Jesus Christ? And could I just ask you tonight, do you think that that is a description of you? And, and uh, man, I'm not talking about us, you know, working up or mustering up some kind of crazy groveling to convince ourselves of how spiritual we are. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about us so seeing the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is that we see ourselves for who we are. Like Isaiah, who expressed the genuine heart of contrition when he came into the presence of the Lord. And do you remember what he said? Woe is me, 
for I am undone. Man, I feel like I'm coming apart at the seams. What about Ezekiel? who expressed the contrition when he saw the Lord for who he was. And he said, and I, I fell on my face. And what about John in Revelation chapter one when he sees the Lord in the fullness? I mean, this is the, John is the guy that had his head on Jesus' breast the night before he died, and now he sees him for who he really is without the veil of his body. And he sees him for who he is, and he says, I fell at his feet as dead. I was afraid to move a stinking muscle. Could I ask you tonight, is the altar of contrition in your walk with Christ broken down and in need of repair? Do, do you find yourself at the altar of the Lord Jesus Christ just naturally expressing a broken and a contrite heart before him? And if you do, does what gets verbalized with your lips get actualized in your life? And, and listen, folks, what do you think would happen tonight if all of the people in the churches that are represented here, what would happen if we actually repaired the altar of contrition that has become broken down and beginning tonight, we all genuinely possessed a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. Uh, uh, in your notes, would you just circle that word contrition? And then notice the second thing that the altar represents, letter B. The altar is the place where daily connection is maximized. The place where daily connection is maximized. Watch what God said back in the Old Testament concerning the altar in Exodus 29, verses 38 and 39, and then we'll pick up in verse 42. Now this is that which thou shalt offer upon the altar. Two lambs of the first year, day by day. What's that next word, y'all? Continually. The, the one lamb thou shalt offer in the morning, and the other lamb thou shalt offer at even, verse 42. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations of the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. Listen to this now, where, where I'll meet you. To speak there unto thee. And again, I want you to get dialed into the, the spirit of what God's saying here. He says at the end of, of verse 42, again, this is where I'll meet with you so I can speak to you. And, and notice in the last part of verse 
38 and the first part of verse 42, again, I called your attention to it when we were reading it, that this was to be continual. You know, a, a good portion of the people in this, this room, uh, we know all about meetings. <laughs> You, some of you schedule them, others of you go to them. We take our kids to them. But could I ask you tonight, how are your meetings with God going? Are, are you walking in daily connection with Him? where you aren't just meeting for the sake of meeting, where you aren't just meeting because you feel good about yourself because you went to the meeting. But you meet with God and through the pages of his word, he's speaking his word to you. And I ask you tonight, is the altar of connection in your life broken down and in need of repair? And again, I want to ask you to think with me about what it would actually be if all of the people that are in this room, just like in the early church and just like in 1 Kings chapter 18, if we all lived with the constant awareness of the incomprehensible reality and anticipation and appreciation for the fact that the God of the universe that created us desires to meet with us on a daily basis. Listen, God knows the crazy world we live in. He knows the, the sinful bodies we live in. He knows the enemy that we face on a daily basis. And God knows that to overcome those realities, we desperately need to connect with him. Not just every now and again, but every single day so that we live our lives in continual connection but my brothers and sisters listen it is up to us to maximize that connection I, I, I promise you every single morning he's waiting to meet with you so that you can get connected with his presence in your life and his power on your life. And again, what would it be, man, if all the churches that are represented here, if every single one of us just came to the point to where we were making that connection with God every single day of our life for the rest of our life. And in your notes, would you circle the word connection? There, there's, a, there's a third thing about the altar. 
Okay, we've seen that the altar is the place where daily contrition is manifest. It's the place where daily connection is maximized. And then thirdly, the altar is the place where daily confession is made. Now, now listen, in, in the Old Testament, you know, we go back into the law. Okay, so in the law, the way that it was spelled out is that if you committed this sin, then this sin required this sacrifice. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, if you did this, then you do that, okay? And you, you owned your sin by making this specific sacrifice, okay? But then Christ came. And he, of course, was the once and for all sacrifice for sin. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Hallelujah. But in our relationship with God, there's still the need for owning our sin. And of course, we can all quote 1 John 1, 9, and if thou shalt uh, confess our sins, (laughs) we can all quote that one. See how you are? If we, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. I'm not looking. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah for the cleansing that we received the day that we called on the name of the Lord to save us. Okay. And we were completely forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future. Amen. But 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 is still there. And, and of course, we can all quote this. <laughs> Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us trust him to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that what it says? Let us cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh and spirit and perfect holiness, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. If I'm reading this verse correctly, what it's basically saying to us is as time goes on, we should be becoming more and more holy because it's being perfected in our life. And when filthiness in our flesh comes, we cleanse it. And when filthiness in our spirit comes, we cleanse it. And in that whole perfecting holiness and becoming more and more holy, what's actually happening is we're becoming more and more like Christ. And I ask you, is that what's happening in your life? Is that what you're experiencing? Because I will tell you, if it is, then you are an an anomaly in the 21st century. Because the trend seems to be the longer that people are Christians, the more like the world they become. And the more accommodating of sin they become. You know, when we first got saved, y'all, without anybody having to preach to us, when we first got saved, there were some places we wouldn't go. Hello? There's some things that we wouldn't say. 
There's some things we wouldn't do. There were some things we wouldn't participate in. There were some things we wouldn't listen to. But now that we've grown in the Lord, and now that makes sense if you don't think about it. Does that sound like legalism that the boy's preaching? For real, does it? Because any time in the 21st century we start talking about these kind of things, oh, I'm a recovering legalist, man. Oh, I don't want to get back in that, that box. Who said anything about any box? I think all we're talking about is perfecting holiness in the fear of God. This is a church epistle, by the way. (laughs) You know, far be it from me to get on a hobby horse here, but what we call liberty today was called iniquity a hundred years ago. And maybe, maybe we didn't even have to go back 100 years. How about 50? And how about all through the history of the church, the things that we do, the things that we allow in the name of liberty, they thought it was iniquity. I'm just asking you, you all has the altar of confession in your life become broken down and in need of repair? And would you circle the word confession in your notes? And then lastly, and we'll get the legalist off the stage. (laughs) The altar is the place where daily communion is maintained. Where daily communion is maintained. You know what, folks? Do you realize that daily communion is what God has always wanted from his creation? I mean, you go back to Genesis chapter 3, before sin entered into the world, and I just love going back there because it says, in the cool of the day, you know what you would find if you would have gone back there? You would have found God coming down the voice of God walking with them. Anybody know who the voice of God is? I think it's the word, and I think the word is Jesus. And you got Jesus in the Old Testament coming down in the cool of the day, man, communing with his creation. That word communing in our New Testament, it's the same word that's translated fellowship. He's there to fellowship with them and commune with them. We were talking about it earlier. It is the most incredible and incomprehensible thing imaginable that the holy God of the universe wants to meet with humans. But that's what God intended. That's the way that God designed it. And as you know, man chose sin, and so communion with God was obliterated. But do you understand that God was still passionate 
for what was happening as the voice of God walked with them in that garden. And in the Old Testament, you see how that passion manifested itself in the mercy seat. And the priest would come and he would sprinkle blood on it seven times, a perfect and complete sacrifice. Listen, and it was the place of communion. Exodus 25, verse 22, God said, And there will I meet with thee. And I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. And do you understand that the New Testament reveals that Christ is the mercy seat? This in Exodus 25, 22 is a picture of Christ. Listen, what Christ came to provide us wasn't just a ticket to heaven when we die. Christ died our death so we could have restored to us communion with God on a daily basis. Listen, to anticipate communing with him in heaven and yet miss the beauty and the reality of the communion that he allows us to share with him on a daily basis now is to miss the point of our salvation, y'all. And so I ask you tonight, as the altar of communion become broken down and in need of repair, If you're really going to be honest about your relationship with God, would you say that communion is a word that describes it? And would you circle that word communion in your notes? Listen, how how different would our life be if on a daily basis our life was marked by and characterized by Communion with God. You know, if you were in my family, um, if you were on a mission trip team that I, I'm leading, you would know that I'm, I'm big on four words. <laughs> Walk in the Spirit. But tonight, four different words. And I want, you to, I want you to listen. Contrition. Connection. Confession. Communion. And as Pastor Allen makes his way to the front. Could I just ask you to search your heart tonight? And if the altar needs to be repaired, listen, this is is the time. This is why we've set this time apart. If if the fire of God is going to be on our life when we leave here on Saturday... We've got to repair the altar that has been broken down.